For June 5th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 466. Red, shiny, boots on the ground. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together, talking about our favorite things, our our favorite uh, movies, TV, music, books, uh, all kinds of uh, stuff that we like to uh, watch and experience together and then talk about together. This week, Wonder Woman. It is uh, an incredible debut, the uh, top domestic debut of all time for a female director and the first female-anchored superhero franchise that has uh, uh, exploded with this kind of uh, force at the box office uh, across the $100 million uh, mar- uh, you know, goalpost, what, line <laughs> barrier. It, bro- it busted through. It went over the top into the no-man's land of the, uh, the nine-figure uh, box office. Obviously, that's number one domestically, nearly a quarter of a million globally, uh, and it is extraordinarily critically praised with a Rotten Tomatoes score uh, in the 90s. And uh, it's, uh, you know, and I I think we all uh, sort of enjoyed it. Here's the panel that's going to be talking about uh, Wonder Woman. We have with us, uh, overthinking at TFT, punk correspondent Rachel D. Hello, Rachel. Hello. We have stalwart uh, pilot, spy, and overthinking it podcaster, Pete Fenzel. Hey, Matt. We have uh, a master of disguise who speaks uh, dozens of languages, Mark Lee. Bongiorno. Uh, expert, <laughs> expert sniper who can't get off a shot but sings like an angel, uh, Ryan Sheely. Doesn't matter if I'm straight edge or drunk. I'm 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 a Scotsman. And <laughs> but are you a true Scotsman? No, true no, I'm Scotsman. Scotch, I'm Scotch Irish, actually. So I am no, no true Scotsman would be, would be straight edge. And I am your host, uh, Matt Rather. Oh boy, a lot of things to dive into with this uh, with this film. But the thing that that uh, everyone seems to be talking about is the tone of the movie, right? That's the the thing that. Is is uh, especially uh, throws into thrown into relief by the grim uh, nature of the DC Snyderverse uh, and the kind of the relentless darkness, um, visual darkness and moral darkness of a lot of the uh, the other films in this cinematic continuity and uh, and media shared universe. Uh, paracosm is a word that I've heard thrown around for this phenomenon, and uh, uh, this film is is funny. It it bucks that trend it has like real charm uh and uh, great chemistry uh, between the leads as well in a way that is uh almost old-fashioned uh it goes back to kind of old europe adventure films you know you could think of like bogart and bacall or something like that like with the the uh the banter and and some of the fun that they that they have um Rachel, let me like start by asking you: What do you think the humor uh, accomplishes here? Like, what was the effect of the humor on you? And did you think it was important that the the movie be funny to realize its artistic project? Uh, yeah, I think I, I think that I think there is a certain amount that that yes, I do think so. Um, I was thinking about it a lot of that. I think the other superhero films, and I think particularly like the Marvel universe, when they're trying to be funny. 
it's all very like one linery or quippy. It's kind of like overly written, like funny, uh, overly written jokes and humor. Um, or everyone's just kind of like, uh, kind of like, like Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, and there's just like a lot more of this like banter, right? Like, kind of written banter. And so I thought what was interesting here is how like the comedy of this film is so based off of the central premise of what would happen if an an immortal Amazon who isn't like socialized to sexism was like put in a sexist world. And, you know, apparently hilarity ensues, right? It's really <laughs> funny. Uh, it's really funny to see uh, Wonder Woman uh, just kind of very, like, um, you know, she's sheltered but not stupid, right? She she interacts with the world with, the, with both a, like, a naiveness, like, she's naive, but she's also very blunt. She's very honest. Uh, and she's just very, um, she you know, she has no um, sense of, like, embarrassment or uh you know meekness she's just kind of like open and out there and empathetic and it's it's funny because we all know what the social norms are for how women are supposed to behave in public spaces and as public figures so as we watch her like barge into parliament like she's trying to look at like a cake or something like (laughs) or or you know i think at one point uh you know wonder woman goes oh a baby It's just like the kind of natural uh, reaction she has to the world around her, both um, positive and uh, negative. I think when she eats the ice cream, right, and she's just like very honest about eating ice cream. Uh, You should be very proud. You should be very proud. Um, The sort of, you know, the the awkward physical comedy of her, like, being dressed in, like, the clothing of her time with the sword and shield. (laughs) And she doesn't know how to go for the revolving door. Uh, It's all, you know, she's, you know, uncomfortable in every outfit she wears and, uh, you know, makes them all suffer for trying on every outfit because she finds them all unbearable. Uh, Just all those different, like, moments here and there where her... Um, I think it's all like very well, like the premise. She is tries, very yeah. She, she tries to kick in the like the ankle length skirts, and uh, you know, and they rip, and and that's funny. Yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's just like to me, it was it, it was unusual because it's for, and I know a bunch of us um, have like experience with like uh, doing like uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade uh, theater style of improv, but to me, it was like a very. Um, good example of sort of humor derived from um, a sense of like having a, like a premise in a game that's played. Right. And here the game is the premise I laid out of what would happen if you brought this immortal Amazon with no sense of like socialization to sexism into a sexist world. Well, this right? is, and how, yeah. how would she honestly react and that there's like humor there. And I think part of what makes it work too, is that uh, Chris Pine is Steve Trevor is a very good, like straight man and foil to that kind of constantly having to remind her that like there are social norms that, you know, you know, and not without necessarily like kind of commenting on them. Right. But he just, he's like, ah, there's social norms about how you behave in public space. So I think that that um, tension is both funny. And then I think central to like showing that tension and playing that premise out, I think leads us all to think about like the way women are socialized to kind of behave differently than the way Wonder Woman behaves. 
I mean, it's interesting because the the comedy, there's also another layer that is like the other ways in which she is sheltered is also understanding a cosmology that is based on the mythology of the ancient Greeks and the and the worldview of the ancient Greeks. And so there is another um, strongly comedic scene that is, I think, is on the boat. It's an earlier part of their conversation on the boat where she says, well, I'm going to find Ares and I'm going to kill him. Uh, and 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 Chris Pine is great. I mean, he doesn't like, really argue with him. He's like, okay, yep, we're going to do that. And it's, it's interesting because this is one where there's different times where his reactions to that are different. And I think that at a certain point, he's like humoring her. He's going along. He's trying to like translate this into like a metaphor and then at some point he's like, no, you can't just kill Ares right? and, and stop war, right? And I think yeah. this is like he's a, a good seed partner. He continues to yes and until he can't anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, but, and the, but even beyond that, it's that by reacting, it's also by reacting like with like a, a lack of comfort and kind of reluctantly going along with it. Like it shows like, you know, that her behavior is unusual, right? Um, it, it kind of underlines what the, you know, the, uh, the, the base reality is of, of how the world works. And, you know, especially in his understanding of the, the reality is someone who's been on both sides of the front line of world war one. Right. And, and so he is someone who has this, you know, um, who's really seen some stuff. Um, uh, uh, and is is still trying to you know not not be a total jerk to her right <laughs> i i am so glad that we figured out how to make sexism funny which is to make the oppression a surprise right like uh you know the the uh just just make it a uh i don't know the 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 accomplishment i'm joking badly i guess but the the i think the accomplishment um here is like uh that Golga Dot in in the performance never she like threads the needle perfectly i think by by having the kind of the strength of character that diana has and also um also some of the knowledge that she doesn't have some of the kind of the indoctrination that she doesn't have that makes her look dumb but doesn't make her dumb right that that makes her not uh, uh not foolish uh, but I, I don't know, sort of like this kind of classic fish out of water uh, comedic trope, like the the you know the SNL sketch where they all where they d- pronounce the names of IKEA furniture funny. You know the one that I mean, right? Uh, and the two people have the same name. But the the like this is this is a sort of classic. This is a classic i uh, kind of comic idea. But like in sketch length, you can do it without having to have a lot of fidelity to a character. Um, and uh, and at film length, you really have to you really have to kind of be true uh, to the to the person that you're creating um, or else it just I mean, or else the whole thing will fall flat because you will stop caring at a certain point. Well, and I think it's I, you know, it's funny because, you know, I guess you could say, you know, well, the humor is like somewhat at her expense for being naive, but it's not because she is like an immortal God who's like 10 times stronger than all of us and will save us all from death. So like, because she's not like ultimately cannot be marginalized. um, It's funny because she's so obviously high status 
that it's not there's never any cruelty in like putting her in these situations where she's kind of like she doesn't have the uh, the information one up on everyone else. Right. Uh, You know, and, and so it's never mean as a result. So it's actually a great way. I agree. It's a great way to call out sexism um, in a humorous way because it's never it's like kind of at her expense but not really because she's so much better than all of us clearly um, yeah and 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 that she can't really be she can't really be marginalized right the thing that makes it funny is that it's not threatening right is that it has to be something that she you see her regard it you see her experience it but she's not threatened by it. Right. Uh, and that that's what makes it funny. Like and if you could make a screwball comedy that makes fun of sexism by having a female character who is not threatened by it because she's kind of a goof, which would be the sort of uh, standard screwball comedy way of lampooning power, like something like trading trading places. Right. Like they're goofs. They don't care. They're, they're not threatened by the establishment. Right. Uh, and, and Wonder Woman does it through power. Right. And you could just you could do it. You could do it's a high status attitude as well as just the ability to not be threatened by it. Yeah, totally. Um, a sort of meta joke, interesting meta joke. Um, the, the, this, the Wonder Woman's uh, game here, her sort of comic game of the world being sexist against her and her sort of going into it with intelligence but with relative naivety in terms of lack of information and lack of understanding. Uh, well, for one, for me, it turned really I don't know if you guys felt this way, but through the middle of the second act of the movie, like I was really sad. I was like weeping uh, because I mean, when the scene where Wonder Woman gets out of the trench and walks across the no man's land is like this this phenomenon Rachel's talking about, but writ large, right? Where she doesn't understand. She doesn't. It's not that she doesn't understand. Is that she is not in relation to the world in the same way that everyone expects her to be in relation to the world. And and the world has this power that's going to be shown to be powerless against her. But there's this real sublimity because it does threaten her there, right? When she's under the shield and she's being hit by the bullets, right? It's not – the threat isn't that she's going to get hurt. The threat is that she's going to figure it out, right? The threat is that she's going to figure out that her idea – that her optimism about humanity is not justified, right? Which sort of becomes a bit of a tragedy, over the course of this movie. I don't know. I didn't see the movie as quite as hopeful as a lot of people saw it, though I agreed that that Wonder Woman herself is a very hopeful figure. Um, and I guess the other side of it was just it's really interesting how one of the things that Wonder Woman does out of a sort of refusal to allow rules that are put on her to like dictate her behavior um, is when she insists on going to the gala, right? When it's like, you can't go to the gala. I'm going to the gala. I'm going to get Aries. Uh, and I just thought it was really interesting how that Wonder Woman being the less experienced of the two agents at the gala trying to pull off like a simultaneous heist is the inverse of the Batman versus Superman sequence where Batman and Wonder Woman are both at the gala trying to steal the computer programs or something, but the data and Wonder Woman is the more experienced heister. She's in the Steve Trevor role and Batman is in the Wonder Woman role. Right. And so there's this cool little meta joke in there of sort of like Mm. Wonder Woman is going to realize and going to change by the end of this movie or at least by the beginning of the next movie. Right. And so there's like a expectation. There's a lot of dynamism there and it makes fun of Batman in a sort of second degree way, which is always great. I mean, Lego Batman movie. uh, It also does that this year. And, you know, there's a lot of richness in the genre in terms of making fun of Batman, which should really be the goal. 
I think of Superman. <laughs> <laughs> this is well, like I mean, yeah. know, in, in some ways putting Ben Affleck in that role is the easiest way to do that because it's just like pa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, the the interplay between vulnerability and invulnerability is something that that uh, as Pete talks because it sounds very interesting to me, right? Like she can't be hurt by the bullets, though I guess she can because didn't they uh, establish in the first act uh, that you can kill Claire Underwood with uh, you know by shooting her? Uh, spoiler alerts more, for more important. Yeah, more importantly, <laughs> this shows her getting cut by a blade, and that she bleeds. Yeah, which implies uh, additional vulnerability beyond um, just the, the flesh wound. So it's Wonder not, Woman's but, a lot more powerful than the Amazons. Wonder yeah. Woman's a demigod. The Amazon. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, sure, sure. Say, but she is a god. Hurry up with her damn croissant, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. There is uh, uh, fair point. Uh, I'm not sure that that is known to us at that point in the narrative, and I'm, ta- yeah. I'm talking about kind of like right. creating creating tension by. By making the stakes by making the stakes real to the to the character, but that's I mean almost almost less important because like we know that from her like agility she's going to be uh, she's going to be able to make it across the the trench in a way that no you know mortal uh, person could. Um, but that like uh, that the idea that there is that there is a greater vulnerability there's kind of a greater moral vulnerability um, in in her optimism and it's an interesting thing that that optimism doesn't really turn it kind of matures but it doesn't it doesn't really turn and i think that's because she's more or less mature when she enters the movie right like she she has uh in in at least in intellectual respects come of age and i think her worldview is kind of established uh already by you know by the time she goes out and if she has that kind of like core optimism as a as a part of her character um you know, it's not going to uh, it's not going to go away. I mean, from the from the point of view of like the the that that first act, like leading up to the uh, leading up to the meeting with with Chris Pine and some of the combat stuff and and the stuff was just so cool for me because it was not like you know uh, uh, Black Widow sexy cat suit combat you know it was like it was legit fierce you know and and like very uh strong and and the the kind of photographing that and making that like something that we ought to appreciate right like you ought to appreciate the like uh not just something like grace right like not just something like poise or or virtues that are more traditionally gendered feminine but like we're going to photograph like uh strength and skill virtuosity um you know, and and a kind of a kind of expertise in in specialized violence, right? That this is uh, the and that you should appreciate this, and that this is something that makes these characters good. Um, and, and and it's not like it's not like uh, fun Black Widow sexy time. You know, uh, is is something that this movie contributed that I I really appreciate it. I, yeah, I, you know, I think this is where having a female director is probably like really important. Um, and like, you know, and I think, uh, Patty Jenkins probably has done like probably a, a great job of like also threading a very tricky needle. Um, you know, where I, I do think it's this, this is definitely not a movie that is like objectifies Wonder Woman, uh, like, or, or is like overly sexually objectifying her. Um, and, and I do think like that in general, that kind of that eye and that perspective, I, I, I do think also translates to all the scenes on the island and of like the training and just showing the lives of the women on the island. Yeah. And, and just to add one thing, uh, one of the things I think that helps in addition to the female director's perspective 
totally agree, really critical, is I think Wonder Woman's vocabulary of movement is pretty well researched. I mean, and, and it is my, my opinion of watching it, right, which was that she draws moves from other characters in the history of comic books, cartoons, video games. In particular, she pulls a lot from Soul Calibur. There's a lot of Soul Calibur in this movie. I don't know, do you guys ever play Soul Calibur? Yeah. Yeah, so there's bit. a lot of like Sophia and Cassandra, right, are ancient Greek warrior women who are probably, ironically enough, kind of based on Wonder Woman, right? But I feel like the sort of the mechanic of the jumping shield slam, to me, just sort of screams Soul Calibur. A lot of the way that the... Uh, uh, and like Attack on Titan, right? The uh, the when the Amazons jump off the cliff and they shoot their grappling hooks out and they collide down, that to me feels like a very, or not very, but somewhat current reference to the innovative uh, manga and anime Attack on Titan, where people fight giants by using grappling things, a kind of harnesses, uh, which is of course related to kind of wire stunt combat. And then her last jump uh, at the end of the movie is like you know point for point. Uh, Goku fighting Vegeta in Dragon Ball Z, like, uh-huh. like like exactly, which is like a very it's it's as it's as sort of cliche and established a like jumping forward uh, tableau as the sort of jumping down and squatting with your hand hitting the ground that Deadpool makes fun of. So I just felt like it's not like they they did it's not like Katana in uh, Mortal Kombat um, where it's like we're gonna figure out how a girl would fight as a dude, right? Which is like demeaning. It's like, we have a really impressive character and set of characters. We need to imbue with a visual vocabulary. Like, where are we going to draw that from? How's it going to feel like rich and developed? There's probably yeah. like whole teams that were uh, doing whole rooms full of ideas as how to do this. I want to add well, one other reference. I think it's just highly relevant, which is Trinity from the matrix, in particular, the scene where wonder woman busts out of a window and slamming a, a German soldier out of it. I believe that is highly referential of a scene. Many, perhaps many scenes from the matrix or Trinity, uh, the bust out of a window, guns blazing in slow motion. Again, that's kind of slow motion aesthetic is is all over all over this movie uh, to, to to really good effect. I, I might add. I mean, one other kind of movement I would love to hear if you guys have a sense of the kind of reference points for um, that I didn't totally hear mentioned is the the crossing of the bracelets, right? And we see it introduced very early on in battle uh, where that is kind of activates like the power. And I think there's several other moments that are this kind of crossed wrist uh, motion. Uh, there are a few other pieces of choreography, but I, I like the crossed wrists um, that is both kind of, I think it happens in the, um, the battle with Ares as well that is this kind of like the uh the good defense becoming a good offense but like very literally <laughs> right um because it's a a uh and it's a little different than some of the shield work uh or like captain america shield work um in that it is a a defensive a block that is so strong that it becomes a punch yeah i, I mean that to me also felt dragon ballish like that's mm, a move that yeah, goku thought, pulls yeah. off yeah. Say more. <laughs> you know tell, tell me more. <laughs> oh, so like this is the, like that kind of that sort of standing in a three quarter stance and holding your your forearms over each other while receiving some sort of barrage and then kind of like busting your hands down to your sides and blowing energy out in all directions. It, it feels very Dragon Ball Z to me. Uh, and, and it felt although it's also probably in a lot of comics as well. Uh, but that's the one that I'm most familiar with. Right. Uh, I mean, it's also it's also the pose, by the way, that that Goku goes through when he powers up into being a Super Saiyan uh, frequently. Right. So uh, it, it felt familiar in that respect as well, although I'm sure there are other there are other comic end scenes. I'm not very well versed in especially contemporary Wonder Woman comics. Uh, 
I don't know if that's like a it very well could also be a standard gesture for Wonder Woman with the bracelets, right? Yeah, and also it's sort of a general yeah. A quick Google image search uh, suggests that the the crossed wrist pose goes at least back to the 70s television show, again, which uh, I haven't seen, not familiar with, but it appears to go back earlier to uh, pre- previous uh, graphical and comic book depictions of Wonder Woman. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Now, where she's blind, she's, she's literally, what about the force field? That was the part that was interesting to me. Is that an, a Wonder Woman thing? Because I thought that would felt like uh, that felt like the kind of thing that it makes sense for her to be able to do, but that I had not seen her done do before. That the uh, uh, that, in any of like yeah that like when uh, at the in the final battle when Ares is is firing all the shrapnel at her that had a very Transformers aesthetic. By the way, the kind of like the the shrapnel coming together into weapons and and uh, barriers and and various kinds of things um, that the uh, you know they just kind of disappeared as she like held her hand out and walked forward or something like that, right? That that that's the force field you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's look who's wonder comfortable. With. I think that you can set it that way, and then the force field. It's just it's all good stuff. Uh, it, the point is that it's a rich and well characterized visual performance. It's a character who has a lot of visual depth in what she's doing, which is pretty cool. So uh, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about the relationship with with Chris Pine, which is a sort of uh, which is a sort of romantic comedy trope um, that really touches the history of cinema and and is reactivated here in an interesting and, and sort of exciting way. Uh, but first, I want to tell you about a little something we got going on on Overthinking It uh, just for the summer. Now you listen to this podcast, you are smart and funny, but your gym clothes maybe not so much. Uh, if you want to. Put a little snark in your swag. If you're a jogger who loves homonyms or a comedian who loves the gym, why don't you check out our 2017 limited edition Suns Out, Puns Out, Men's and Women's Tees and Tanks. Uh, we had this idea a couple years ago and did a, uh, a Channing Tatum-based uh, adaptation of this joke, Suns Out, Puns Out, for uh, summer 2015, and now they're back for 2017 with an awesome new design uh, on men's and women's t-shirts and men's and women's uh, men's and women's tank tops. Uh, perfect for lounging at the beach, uh, for your solo jog or trail run, for your spin class, for your workout, uh, any kind of uh, activity. And now, overthinking it, members get a discount on these, and uh, at the top level, uh, the shirt is included in your membership for the full Harvey. Uh, for the full Harvey members. If you'd like that, you can always join and become an Overthinking It uh, member. But uh, even if you don't, uh, check out the shirts at overthinkingit.com slash store. Uh, Add the right amount of snark to your swag at overthinkingit.com slash store. On the beach, in the gym, or in the streets, let everybody know what a punny athlete you are. Five, six, seven, eight. Guys, do you think that was enough time to hold for the laugh? <laughs> no, not enough time. Need okay. more time. Okay, hold on. Twelve. Yeah, they're still laughing. 13, they're still laughing, man. Fourteen. Fifteen. <laughs> Overthinkingit.com slash store for the Suns Out Puns Out limited edition t-shirts in exclusive colorways. 
for 2017. Check it out, overthinkingit.com slash store. So uh, ever since, uh, from the time that Chris Pine crashes um, into the beautiful lagoon uh, off of the Amazon's secluded island, and she frees him from the airplane, from the World War I era biplane, uh, by pulling out the phallic control stick that is tracking, trapping him in place. She yanks that out, uh, just just pulls it right off of that plane, just just with incredible force, just yanks that thing and throws it away um, and uh, saves saves uh, you know um, wh- what uh, sort of damsel in distress stand in Chris Pine uh, they Man, he's a manzel he's a manzel a manz- in there you go um, <laughs> you're a pretty punny athlete yourself, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> Um, the uh, uh, you know they they embark on this sort of uh, this unique relationship that that carries them uh, throughout the film until he is uh, rather aggressively fridged at the end. Um, the in in a place he fridges himself in a place of glory. Uh, but you know <laughs> the, this from the start. Like, what can we say about this relationship? Like from the from the start, uh, their early conversations in the first act. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the way he plays a, a straight man, a, a comic foil, uh, in the second act in, in, in the London scene. So I guess mostly, mostly first and third, uh, act here. What do you think? Uh, you know, what do you think? I mean, Pete, you liked a lot of these, uh, you liked a lot of these Chris Pine, uh, Diana scenes, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And my, my favorite line in the whole bunch, and I think it has a lot to do with his character and also with what the movie is trying to say is on the boat when Chris Pine is explaining the concept of marriage. And did you guys catch this? Because there's a wonderful pause. How rare is the superhero movie that is willing to not say things, right, to let things go unsaid? It tends not to happen in superhero movies. Everything tends to be said, right? Uh, and and there's, a, there's a great line where he's explaining what the marriage vows are. And did you guys catch this where he goes that people promise and and it's very complicated what happens. He goes, people promise to love, honor, and he pauses and you see him sort of move his head. And then he says, cherish each other. Right. So, you know what I'm talking about, right? Sure. I remember the scene, but unpack what you're getting out here, Pete. So, so. All right, so this has so this is 1918 when this is all happening. Uh, the the actual marriage vows in the Book of Common Prayer in both I think Protestantism and Catholicism in general at the time, the man would say something like love, cherish, and worship, and the woman would say love, honor, and obey. Obey, yeah, yeah. And Chris Pine thinks obey, like Steve Trevor thinks obey. You can sort of see in that pause he thinks obey and he doesn't say it, and he says cherish. And what's really interesting about that, other than that it shows him making a – he makes a decision to withhold information from her to try to paint a rosier idea of what the world is. He's also making a decision that maybe he thinks is going to win her over and and sort of not set her off and turn her against him, which is also something he's trying to do because he is trying to you know, get her to do things for his own advantage like over the course of the movie. He's no saint, right? Uh, he's just as bad as a lot of the other people, which he openly admits. Um, but also – in 1922, right, so, so changing the marriage vow from obey to cherish was a goal of English suffragettes 
in the 19-teens mm. and 1920s. Mm. And, and in 1922, the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church in the United States voted uh, to allow women to say cherish instead of obey if they wanted to. And a sort of optional addendum was added to the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, I believe. And I've, I've seen some conflicting sources on this, so I might have the years off or like the relationship between the proper Book of Common Prayer and this sort of allowance that was made by by, by the church hierarchy. But but this is this is right around the time where women are are gradually going or just initially going to stop pledging to obey their husbands. And and it's interesting that. Chris Pine presents marriage as a relationship of love, honor, and cherish, and not obey. And then there's the there's the uh, the complementary role of secretary, right, which is the obedience gendered relationship. And and Chris and so it's just it's interesting that that he isn't so above that he's he is he is he is woke enough that he is like up to speed on the contemporary and and better way of, of making a marriage vow. But he's not so woke that he is willing to let his secretary boss him around, right, because of the gendered consideration. Um, but I just thought that in that silence where he sort of thinks and considers and says to her and what it means to her, there's just so much in, in his character and in their relationship, right? Maybe even the thing that she likes about him. Other than, of course, his dainty into the woods quality good looks, uh, but uh, <laughs> he, is, he is a man pretty enough to be fridged, which is rare in today's uh, today's world. You really need to raise the bar. Uh, and and, and okay, I mean, we, like the, the the blue eyes count as a special effect, I think, right? Like there are a couple. There of, are Game of Thrones, so yeah, <laughs> and in the Dune on sci-fi. But anyway, Mark, okay. you were saying. I, I think we should pause for a moment and explain the the phenomenon and the history of fridging. Um, because we talked about him overthinking it before, um, but not everybody might be familiar with it. Who wants to take that? <laughs> I think you just volunteered yourself. Oh, okay. I mean, well, I'm not as steeped in it. I can uh, in, do in, it. In I can do lore. it. Um, the short really version of it, which is basically that, like, oftentimes in com- comic books uh, and to a certain extent action movies, there is a trope of the female love interest of the male hero getting killed and in some instances getting gruesomely killed, like getting stuffed into her fridge and specifically uh, the case of Green Lantern back in the comics. Is that right, Pete? Yeah, yeah. It refers to an incident in 1994 where the Green Lantern comes to home and finds that his girlfriend has been murdered and stuffed in his refrigerator by the incredibly important character of Major Force. Uh, <laughs> Not merely Lieutenant Force, but Major Force. No, that is called insult to injury, people. When the girlfriend character is is murdered in a gruesome and, and just mutilating sort of way uh, to develop his character and also to sort of put over such a stupid villain. But anyway, right. I shouldn't bash Major Force. this conversation, but... it means that the, the female characters in stories like that, and when they're fridged, um, they are less valued, right? They are – you can dispose of them – to uh, further on the story and further on the development and, and increase the the angst and the, and the anguish of the male character. It's a narrative. Now, I, I mean, it's a narrative corollary of kind of object of other kinds of of objectification, right? It's a narrative objectification right. because now, it's, 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 yeah, it to treats- be clear, I don't I don't think we're saying that Chris Pine is being objectified in that same way, right? I think what we're saying is that just the contrast is interesting. Um, in that, you know, we're so used to seeing Chris Pine as a leading man who whose female companion would get fridged. And yet, you know, we see him as a mantle in distress and he gets ki- fridged, uh, ki- killed at the end um, in, in sacrifice and support of, of the female lead I mean, of this. I would, I would go a little 
bigger than that. Just, I mean, you guys saw Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, right? That wonderful. Yes, co- I, 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 I regrettably so. And Wonder Woman carries with her in that movie like a, a and a sort of reluctance to be a superhero and to involve herself in kind of the violent side of world affairs, right? And it's because of the death of Steve. Is you get the sense in that movie that it's because of the death of Steve Trevor, it's the death of some person in the past that she lost. That caused her to do it. And, and this whole movie is set up as the the answer to Batman's question of why you are the way you are. And so I'm not, I'm not saying I would go farther in terms of Chris Pine being objectified, but going farther in terms of like throughout the movie and throughout the DC Cinematic Universe, the ostensible purpose of Steve Trevor is to do development for Wonder Woman. Right. And, and I mean, he gets a lot of three dimensional character development of his own, which is not which is like this sort of not the kind of objectification we're talking about. But it is interesting to see a male character serve that role for a female character beyond merely just like there's characters in the core uh, in the in Hillary Swank, you know, Armageddon, but down where she has to drill to the center of the earth to stop the earth from blowing up or something. <laughs> Where, like, a man will kill himself to help out Hillary Swank. And there's, like, scenes in Alien where a man will, or aliens, where men die to, like, so that Sigourney Weaver may live. But I don't think that they, for the most part, are doing it to provide her with character development in those kinds of situations. It's pretty rare, I think, in an action movie to see a man, uh, a male character, die in order to provide, like, as a means to provide character development for a female character. Okay, all right, so let me get this straight. So, uh, Steve Trevor dies, and that's why Wonder Woman doesn't get involved in the affairs of men until uh, Batman versus Superman. So right. that explains why Wonder, Wonder Woman set up the Holocaust, huh? Didn't help out there. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Wonder Woman establishes in this movie that she gets involved, <laughs> that she's like a diplomat, and she's in NGOs, right? And so she probably was working with refugee groups and trying to traffic people, but she was not willing to put, like, red shiny boots on the ground, is what it is, right? Oh. That's okay, what she's not willing to do. All right. Yeah. Is okay. that what she do- is doing at the end of the movie? I thought she was. Uh, I thought she was working at the Louvre. Yeah, she's working at the Louvre. That's right. But she says that she helps, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. Like, she's. I think she's presented in Batman versus Superman as one of those sort of like international NGO affiliated diplomatic sorts of people. Um, but I'm not. I mean, maybe. Maybe I'm off. I, that movie is also incredibly. Not coherent and not a good source of information. <laughs> in, in the real world, the W on her belt stands for World Bank. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. So it does, like it's. I, I think when we say that, like the movie is is content to pause, let things be uh, unsaid, and and well, uh, and. And spend time on character development, right? Like spend some some serious time, like just sitting on the boat, uh, talking about sleeping together, which you know is hilarious because she doesn't know the implication, the the kind of like the valence that that phrase has, uh, or you know have the conversation in the uh, have the I am above average, uh, I uh, I am above average in the uh, in the hot tub uh, department um, the conversation, right? Like, but this is in the context of superhero movies, right? In the context of of summer action tentpoles, generally, right? It's not a it's not exactly a character study, and I feel like there there is maybe a gap uh, in that second act between. Um, 
between kind of the early character focused uh, moments and kind of relationship focused moments between them and the like the taking the plane blowing up the plane um, in the air and and what she takes from that uh, in their sort of night uh, their one night that they spend together in the the French village it's I guess that's a, a sort of stopping place in, in the middle to do it but I, I'm not sure that like the character development totally tracks for me uh, though this this may be or or I mean it tracks I mean it makes sense but I'm not sure it it I'm not sure it all actually happens, uh, you know, in a way that's in a way that's sort of dramatically convincing, as opposed to like convincing on the level of of you know logic and and what would happen and and uh, you know and things like this. Because like you know, I'm I'm Diana and I believe in the power of love uh, or some well, you know whatever whatever she says isn't isn't necessarily. Set, you know, set up as the thing that she, uh, as something that's that's going to be a, a, an important discourse in the movie. I mean, I, I would argue that this is, this movie joins the fine Shakespearean tradition of having an epilogue monologue that has very little to do with what the movie is actually sure, about, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. and then gives the audience a message here, right? That gives them the sort of socially approved, appropriate message. Like Wonder Woman is like framed at the end of like I'm a nurturer, right? Like I love people, and it's that's not everything that you yeah, did. You also no. murdered that dude, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I would also like, add you murdered that. that dude, and it was not the dude that you should have murdered. And and like, you, we don't really address the complication and implication of that on you in the course of the movie, right? Other than as an implication, right? Other than as like part of her character moment. But anyway, sorry. The, 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 yeah, let's call it, it's it's the Chris Pine effing conundrum, right? That the. the uh, you know that that we're there. We're there to see um, some awesome violence. We're not necessarily there to see like the power of love. Uh, the power of love saved the day. And I mean, I think that like it gets a little. It gets a little snidery in that that third act with the kind of the the literal visual darkness and the just the the wanton um, the wanton destruction. Uh, and and I think I I don't know. I feel like the movie is a lot better. Um, it's actually a lot more affecting, right? Uh, evoking the uh, and and more powerful, evoking the uh, the horrors of trench warfare in a more realistic way, in a sort of in in a more visceral way. Like actually, after I was a little bit rolling my eyes uh, during that final battle with Ares, but the, then immediately after, in the wake of the final battle, uh, I I don't know if you clocked this happening, but it like I've noticed it and it had a profound uh, impact on me. The German soldiers take off their gas masks or the kind of the hoods that they're wearing. And one of the kids looks like 15. Right. Yeah. And the, the reality that wars are, are waged by are waged by great powers, but are, are fought by children for all intents and purposes, yeah. like in the wake of everything that that had happened. And in the wake of in, in the wake of this kind of philosophical discussion about the kind of the the inherent um, uh, uh, the inherent violence of humankind, right, uh, w- was very moving, uh, very moving to me. I mean, I you know, I and f- really far more affecting than the the third act battle with with uh, Ares was. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I I think you know, in kind of talking about the in love and, and Chris Pine, you know, I I kind of initially kind of felt like 
I remember when they like, the seeing them spend their night together in the or implied that they had the night together in the French village. I couldn't help but feel like she would break him, like quite literally. Um, <laughs> like we saw her make dents in walls. Oh but, no, he, and, like, he's and, he's and, above like, average. Tent, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, and to that point though, though, like that she would break him. I do think like it's hard not to the love thing. It's like she is a demigod, and I guess like what makes it like kind of her able to empathize and be like a little more than kind of like this kind of distant remove kind of like benevolent, like kind of mother or father love towards humankind is that for a while she doesn't totally realize she's a demigod. Right. Hmm. So in that way, she is kind of like Christ-like or like she comes into the world kind of like, Hmm. kind of like on our level because she doesn't totally, she's not totally self-aware for the first part of the movie. Um, right, she's like she she's not raised with God privilege, right? Right, she's, like, she's not raised with God privilege, and I do think that by raised, the yeah. end, yeah. Uh, but by the end of it, it is hard not to sort of you know her love is is still going to be like a kind of her love of humankind has to be kind of distant and like in like at the heart of heart, right? Even if she cares deeply about humankind, it's like she's immortal, oh. like she. Like, I, and, and, you know, I think it gets to, I, I think, like, the, so I think the love, it is interesting, because, like, I think part of, like, love kind of ringing false is that she's, like, too, she really can't, like, love in the way we tend to think about humankind loving well, and loving each other. Or if she can, it's, like, another foreign language that she is, like, is that she's fluent in, right? She's right. fluent in, like, over 100 languages or something, that, uh, and we see several of them. Uh, and so for her... Um, even if she becomes fluent in uh, in in human love and the ways that humans love, um, that that it's still not her kind of native tongue, right? It's not right. The, it's not the mode of kind of love um, that's portrayed all the way back in the kind of moving picture story of the gods, right? And and the relation of the gods to man, um, like you say, is um, is is a bit different. Is it? Yeah, it's like a bit different. It's it's more benevolent, and it makes me think about um, you know, even at the end where she's talking about love, she looks at that at the the watch that Steve Trevor gave her. Like she's kept that watch, mm-hmm. and it's like that's like another like she doesn't care about time. <laughs> like she doesn't care about time at all, but like she can appreciate right. that like these 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 little nice creatures, right. uh, humans like care about time. Right. right. She looks the same as she did 100 years, years ago, ago. Right. Right. <laughs> and 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 like she can appreciate at like a kind of a distance, but while still being like very empathetic and caring about it. Mm. You know, like the kind of the the ways in which humans can love each other and care for each other. Is this is this a plot hole that she ages to a certain point and stops? Right? Like it's not that she doesn't age, she ages, but then she stops. She stops at like she left the Mystic era? Uh, oh, I have no idea. I, but, yeah. I feel <laughs> she had achieved she had achieved peak hotness. Well, I think it's like if you're gonna be carved out of clay and like carved into like a child form, I feel like you can set the rules for like how your like clay body grows, right? Like it's like kind of like those little dinosaurs you put in cold water and they expand to a certain size, <laughs> you know. And it's like, but it's like the full grown expanded dinosaurs, like. 30 and very fit, you know? <laughs> what they don't show you is that baby Wonder Woman is extremely heavy and dense. And all of the material will gradually expand and become less 
You know, don't they correct it? I thought that was really cool how they have the origin story of her being made out of clay, but then it's actually no, you're just you. Zeus had sex with your mom. Oh no, you're <laughs> like, right. <laughs> but they did both, right? They did. They you go through the movie with the expectation that one of them is true, and it makes total sense, and he gets switched over the other. But I wanted I wanted to talk about the watch because that's the Downton Abbey moment. That's the Downton Abbey. I love when you're just like, oh man, superheroes are talking about. Uh, accessories and timepieces, right? Like I felt like that was the. Uh, they must be saying something that's important to the themes of the movie, uh, and we've touched on it. But I just wanted to point it out, you know, real overtly that when Chris Pine says, "Oh, this is a watch," you know, it tells you when to wake up, it tells you when to eat, and she says, "You let that little thing tell you what to do," right? <laughs> and, and with this sort of incredulity, and you can read the whole rest of the movie. As, as an acceleration and a sort of a crescendo of Wonder Woman encountering different sorts of devices that attempt to tell her what to do and then her disregarding their their guidance. And they, they go from, like, the store with the fashion to Parliament hmm. to, like, you know, and they, they get really intense. The heightening keeps going. You know, no man's land between the trenches in World War One. Yeah. Right. Like like the, the German high command. Right. Is it, itself. Right. And then literally at the end, she like she smites. She has to smite a bitch. Right. Is that is, what he's <laughs> is that like she literally defies a god at the end of the movie. And that's and, and it's interesting because um, what is what is Wonder Woman's superhero superpower? Uh, yes, she's super strong. Yes, she has this great sense of compassion. Maybe a, a, a good way of summing it all up is that Wonder Woman is bigger than whatever your problems are right now. Like she's able to be the bigger person. She's able. She's able to see the bigger picture. She's able to operate on a bigger moral plane, right? Like whatever it is that's bothering you or causing you problems or constraining your ability to act act morally, no matter how huge it is, for Wonder Woman, it's a little thing that tells you mm-hmm. what to do. And I feel like this does the Wonder Woman I'm most familiar with is the Wonder Woman from Justice League Unlimited and Justice League. The sort of uh, was it Paul Dini. Uh, and uh, and this the sort of um, Batman the animated series people Wonder Woman who is is a sort of like senior uh, senior superhero of of sort of great respect and gravitas not quite the same degree of sort of cerebral uh, kind of um, sageness as the Martian Manhunter but like a voice of authority and more even a, and more of a voice of kind of actively operating authority than say even Superman. Uh, who tends to be a little bit of a dilettante from time to time, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but like she's bigger than this. Wonder Woman is bigger than this problem. Wonder Woman doesn't have to be scared of. I mean, that's part of why she's so intersectional, right? And why all of the all of Themyscira is so intersectional, right? Is that like everybody has their problems, right? You have your problem, I have my problem. Don't consider your problem to be bigger than everybody else's. There's this sense of scope and perspective mm-hmm. that Wonder Woman has that combines with her super strength to give her that distinct feel. Uh, and I liked it a lot. I thought I thought it, it, it informed the movie and enriched the movie and kind of made the movie all make sense for me. Well, the other the uh, the other read of that line that was certainly read by the like um, there's a large group of, I think, uh, teenagers uh, right behind us at our showing. And the other reading of that line uh, is about Chris Pine's uh, dong. Right. Uh, yeah. right? Oh, and that's a loaded reading. Go, go ahead. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like she said that like all the teenagers. Oh, that. I didn't mean that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, sun's it. out, puns out. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a uh, well, and it's hot in there. So it's a hot loaded reading. 
no, but and that uh, and and right, and so, but this connects really interestingly to what you're saying of like all the all the little things that tell you what to do, and that that both in combination of the with the watch and the phallus, that 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 type of being governed by these little things as being kind of. Um, as connected somehow to patriarchy um, or to kind of some form of phallocracy, right? Of and it's not that that all of those objects are um, are phallic necessarily, but that there is something about this kind of single mindedness of those kinds of restrictions. I mean, the other one is um, that is interesting that jumped out in your list was no man's land, right? And it is no man's land, but she's not a man, so she so she she goes into the land. She's and not even of, like a human. <laughs> Well, yeah, that, I, I was waiting for that line, and I think it showed admirable restraint in the script, yeah. not for that. Like, no man can cross into, you know, into the other trench, and you just want her to look at them and be like, well, good thing I am no man. Right? Like, and that's not, that that no, would be bad. That would be bad. It's another piece of restraint there, and, and, and it, like, it was, it was able to resonate uh, without being said, sure. which is, like, again, the, definitely a first for the current incarnation of the DC universe, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, which is more often is the is the inverse where things are said and they don't re- resonate at all. Right. Yeah. 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 It, every, everywhere Zach, in the DC universe, little things are telling us what to do. You know, are telling I us what like to think. Zack Snyder would have had her say that line, and then there would have been this like slow pan up her leg and like side <laughs> passing her little belt and her crotch. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. And to that point, like, in that in that scene when she's ascending from the trench into no man's land, like the camera does like linger. Uh, not uh, in like that kind of male gaze kind of way. Again, to the point of it being a uh, a female director, right? But it literally looks lovingly upon her like red armor boots uh, and then uh, other parts of her regalia. And then finally, you get to see her um, in in full display uh, in in the trench. And that is a triumphant moment. And it speaks to like you know the 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 visual pleasures and the visual. Um, satisfaction you get from this movie that it is all being done in a way that is not, you know, objectifying her as a piece of meat. So, okay, so again, all to, all to Patty Jenkins' credit. Like, yeah, a, a couple things here, right? Like, cinematically, one of the languages of objectification is shooting parts of women's bodies and not, you know, some kind of more holistic way of photographing women. And this is all leading to the the full length shot of her running, uh, running in the trench. And and what's highlighted there is not her desirability, not her sexual desirability. But her exuberant motion, uh, her invulnerability, her incredible power, right? Like the, this, her moral strength and moral certitude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the kind of the and and willingness to kind of exercise agency in service of of her her deeply held beliefs. Um, a couple other things, like for I think the like the relevant uh, post structuralist theoretical tool uh, to link the the all the little things together is that of phal logocentrism, right? The idea that there is uh, that that uh, you know so called patriarchy is a part of other kinds of of systems of control, or rather that other systems of control are complicit in uh, in upholding the patriarchy. Though though to me, I think the film earns its like celestial perspective enough not to be making a, uh, a more a simpler essentialist argument about like you know um, 
about sort of the the like the mystical the mystical feminine uh values that are that are not governed by by time or or the petty things like that because you get into like you know i don't know you, you i feel like that that uh leads you into um that leads you into not great territory there right the that the yeah. you know the, she, she explicitly connects it to thucydides right which was pretty a pretty deep cut for a movie like this which is awesome i love deep cuts like this which is Wait, what, Thucy- remind us yeah. what that is so thucydides is the i mean ryan would probably know the most of th- about thucydides of any of us here i would guess is thucydides is is the the second and more, somewhat more modern of the two truly great ancient Greek historians, the first being Herodotus, right? And Herodotus being sort of a historian, uh, almost like a myth maker kind of historian. Yeah, and Herodotus, in Herodotus, like people are riding on the back of dolphins. They're, they're, yeah. Herodotus is the source of the Gyges ring story that I love telling on this podcast about the ring that makes you invisible. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of stuff based on Herodotus, like Lord of the Rings and, and Game of Thrones and stuff. <laughs> it kind of goes back to like Herodotus's alleged description of real events right um but thucydides is is more interested in the peloponnesian war i believe specifically right and in politics and warfare and is somewhat more uh grounded i would say but there's a quote from thucydides that she she brings up which is uh peace is an armistice in a war that is continuously going on and this is referring to the practice i think of 10-day armistices in ancient greek war in this particular area um and uh, and the idea that, you know, you have an armistice, you, you have a, a period of time in which two people don't fight, but then they fight again. And you see this phenomenon of the armistice also shows up in Homer in the Iliad, right? It's, uh, I mean, one of my favorite uh, works of peace moments in all of literature is what is it, Book 24 of the Iliad, where Priam begs Achilles to return uh, Hector's body, right? And they agree to... A, a period of mourning and a funeral games for Hector in which everybody in this sort of mutual acknowledgement of mortality decides not to fight anymore. And I think that Wonder Woman's arguments, if I were to characterize it, and I'm curious how you guys would characterize it, is that this mode of thinking, which is uh, which is clearly demonstrable in ancient Greek thought, is a foundational mode of thinking in Western thought and that Western thought and Western civilization that's been built on this mode of thinking is essentially patriarchal, right? Not, not not in a sort of like supernatural or naturalist sort of way, but because of the tradition, right? That it's like, it's an idea that in its characteristic is patriarchal, right? This idea that the kings are going to decide when we're going to be at war, the kings are going to decide when we have armistices, but the kings are, are discursively not going to be capable of understanding or articulating the concept of peace because the specter of war is, is so present in their consideration of themselves and the people around them and that there needs to be some sort of new discursive technology to upend this old Thucydidean way of describing uh, the relation between peoples and the relation between uh, tribes and leaders uh, and that all of this is uh, patriarchal not by nature but by but by tradition and history uh, and that's sort of what the Amazons have been put in place to do is to counteract that. Uh, rather than to counteract the sort of um, the the sort of uh, supernatural phallocentric, right? To, rather than to sort of fight an eternal war against jocks who bully people in the hallways of eternal high schools, right? It's not quite. It's more on a on a history, which is because it's interesting to blame the the armistice treaty at the end of World War One as an act of evil, right? 
as like something that evil is interested in. I thought that was an interesting choice. Maybe doesn't quite nail it, but like really dark, right? And really interesting. I mean, did you anybody else interpret that either interpret the Thucydides differently or interpret this approach to like peace and war and patriarchy differently? Well, I, I feel like a little bit the uh uh, like a, a little bit Aries is trolling right like he's he's sort of like he's giving peace uh or he's he's supporting peace um oh god there's there's got to be a, a a term for it right like in the in the discourse of like the various forms of bad faith in in uh comment sections you know where he's he's uh making he's making impassioned arguments uh for peace just to uh which we all acknowledge Knowledge is a good, um, and which he concedes is a good, just to point out that we can't do it, that that we can't uh, have nice things. You know, is an armistice for the is an armistice for the lulls. I didn't agree. I thought that the point of the armistice was to was that if there isn't an armistice, then eventually the hostilities would have to end. And as long as you call a truce and the nations continue to persist and the leaders continue to persist in their halls of power, then humanity will continue to develop increasingly powerful means of destruction. And that will eventually lead to the extinction of humanity, that that if you actually let people fight a war until they finalized all their differences— that it would get in the way of Ares' agenda. Uh, okay, people, so yeah. the idea, so so you're saying there's a boundary condition where like the weapons become so powerful, and at that point we can just pull the ripcord and let the war, uh, let the war continue. But un- until then, we have to work to bring about peace because the war is not yet horrifying enough. I mean, that was. I think I'm doing a little bit of work for the story there, <laughs> but that was sort of how I pieced it together well, and I mean, rationalized I, it in my brain. It's sort of. Uh, it's interesting because, like, World War One was this, like, in terms of the self concept, the the conception of the horrors of war, right? Like the the uh, the idea of like machine guns, uh, like machinery of war, gas, um, mechanized infantry, like the whole the whole thing uh, was this enormous. This like seems like if any. If any war was was going to be the turning point, uh, this one. But the, I, I don't know. I guess we we uh, every time we seem to find find ways to make it um, to make it more horrible. But there are like there are conceptions. There are like different conceptions of what war is that that is brought to bear. Right? Like Diana's is the the like striving of one hero against another. Uh, you know, face to face. Um, in you know, in in a kind of morally in a morally straightforward way, and she's she's horrified Which makes by sense because she's a god right yeah. so for her she's a demigod like somebody like achilles or diomedes or hercules for whom you know uh a, a, yeah. a conflict is something where like the big the big honcho has to be on the sure field. Uh, and right exactly yeah. and she's talking she's she's talking about that like homeric level of battle right where the heroes kind of call each other out and fight one-on-one um like in high school right like where and where there's like a chanting circle that that forms around them you know uh and which by the way already was obsolete by the time of thucydides uh when war who was i think aristophanes called war that great stainer of men's ankles um you know was was talking about uh armies in formation kind of running at each other and there's just there's so even from the ancient greeks there's some horrible stuff about that like the crunching sound that two armies make when they you know uh, crash into each other and the the aspect some aspects of dehumanization had been you know uh, uh developed already already then but but i don't know world war one and then the kind of the the uh the 
war, the mechanical war, the kind of the machinery of war that is brought home uh, most poignantly in the gassing of the French village, which horrifies her, is this kind of like threshold that she, she threshold of like horror and condemnation that she passes through in order to, to really steal her for the third act. Would you say that crossed a red line? Oh, I mean, shit, shit. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't stop thinking about like what would Wonder Woman do dealing with the uh, the chemical warfare going on in Syria right now. I mean, She'd I think go there herself, right? <laughs> I, I suppose she would. I, I mean, I think that speaks in a lot of ways, like kind of the weakness of the. I don't know. Uh, she's ultimate, a dip- uh, po- yeah, she's a diplomat. Political now. message. Yeah, it speaks to the, the weakness of the political and sort of the philosophical uh, message at the end of it, right? Which is that. Um, Ares is this god of war, and he, yes, he's been corrupting men, but men, you know, are war, they, they start these wars on their own, but th- uh, Ares uh, allows them to do even worse war by, you know, whispering, you know, chemical warfare innovations into the ears of Dr. Poison. Well, this is I another, guess. yeah, this is another and, trolling move, right? Like, hey, all I did was put the loaded gun with the hair trigger in their hand. I'm not responsible for what they did with it afterwards. Yeah, that is. Yeah. But, you know, just to play this out here, right? So that, okay, so uh, that's Ares' influence on man. So it establishes that that's a real thing. And Wonder Woman kills Ares. And meanwhile, um, uh, you know, um, it's Chris Pine fridges himself and saves the day and, and, and saves the peace. Um, and all is good, right? Well, no, as I kind of just was trolling earlier, but I'm only, I'm, I am being half serious that, you know, the Holocaust comes later along. So uh, I guess Ares didn't uh, need to whisper into anybody's ear to make that one happen. So I mean, do we know that the Holocaust really like... happens in this continuity though? <laughs> Magneto is a Marvel comics character, not a DC character. Well, yeah, I was about, I was about to say, I feel like the, the Marvel cinematic universe Ooh. has gotten, um, wow. Wow. Oh dear God. Uh, yeah, this, this line goes nowhere. Good. But the, I, I was oh, actually, what do you mean it goes nowhere. Good. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the real life answer, right. Is that Superman AKA Kal-El is an imagination of Jewish Americans. Right. And as such, like the implication of the Holocaust has a lot of implications for like DC heroes. Right. And, and the idea that no wonder woman doesn't stop the Holocaust. And you know why right. she doesn't because Steve Trevor dies. That's why. Cause if she, if she, if Steve Trevor didn't die, she wouldn't do it. Right. But this, I, and, the, and you know what it is, is that the, the whole thing about like, well, what would Wonder Woman do in Syria? What, how would people deal with it? That's the whole freaking stupid, terrible plot of Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, right? <laughs> Superman released or to Africa, right? And it's, I think it's Africa. It's, it's vaguely defined, full of white people and sandy, uh, and like it's, it's all terrible. But the point being that like. They want to show you now like that's sort of what the Justice League movies are supposed to be about. Right. Is like we've established that Wonder Woman figured this out back in the day, but she's been out of the game. We figured out that Superman has sort of shown up on Earth and is kind of getting up to speed with it, but is having some real problems with politics. And then he gets killed. And then like Batman is kind of thing but is a, a sort of a huge mess right and it is ben affleck who is not capable of being in charge of this entire business and, and this is all supposed to synthesize right so like the question of like i mean you could do you could have a scene in dawn of justice where like batman is sitting down or like superman comes back and is sitting down with wonder woman and wonder woman just like weeps and tells superman about the holocaust right like i mean you could do that <laughs> it, especially if Zack snyder directed it that would make a lot of sense but you have a lot of shots of like her hips and her legs and her bosom as she was doing it because it'd be Zack. parts parts of her you know, yeah she'd be she'd be sort of divided up into look at her womanly compassion 
opposed to her actually doing anything about it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess so. So is it that you guys are uncomfortable the idea after this movie one doesn't stop the Holocaust? No, is that it, the idea? it presents kind of a jumbled, incoherent um, statement at the end about the yeah. nature of violence and our duty, our moral duty to to save people and to and to stop these sorts of things. Like, you know, what? how far can any one person, whether she, he or she is a demigod or a regular person, go to prevent suffering and injustice in the world? And where does it come from? And and all these things. It's trying. It's grasping very uh, it's grasping. It's trying very hard to make these grand statements about it and doesn't quite come together and into something that makes a lot of sense. Well, it's, and, and there's a, there's a kind of logic to the, like the late capitalist phenomenon of the shared cinematic continuity, right? That, that, uh, is a little bit Aries like, uh, because you have to, you know, you have to get them to buy tickets to the next movie. Right. And so there, there's a, a tension, I guess, between creating emotionally satisfying, uh, sort of totalizing endings, Right. And really, you know, really trying to make it seem like uh, you got your money's worth out of this one and, um, you know, getting you in line, getting you in line for the next one. And and when you kind of start to interact with real historical events, I think sometimes the juxtapositions become a little uncomfortable because if you really cash out the uh, they don't become uncomfortable as as long as you don't. Uh, overthink what is going on. So uh, this is going to be the last episode of the Overthinking It podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> let, me present, let me suggest a salient, a salient cleavage. Uh, this is a gross oversimplification. With regards to the great tragedies that happen in the real world, the Marvel superheroes are metaphors and symbols and associations of experiences with those tragedies. And the DC superheroes are fantasies about what kind of people would we need to have around in order for those things to not happen, right? So the Marvel universe gets Magneto, who's a product of the Holocaust, and the DC universe gets Superman, who is the defender that the Jewish people would have wanted against all the people who victimized them over the years, right? And, and like if and who who stands up for everybody, not just them. And if Superman was around, there would be no Holocaust. But like Superman and Magneto can't really exist in the same universe, right? Like they don't they're not sort of I mean, you could do it, but it's like they're not really coherent in the same way that like Charles Xavier and Magneto are coherent with each other because Charles Xavier is the kind of privileged leader that would be like, well, I can't do anything about it. Right. Um and that's not Superman's like, I got spandex. I can do anything. Yeah. Right? And that's like, the, well, right. And that's that's the sort of like the, the Marvel heroes are sort of scientific heroes. I'm way oversimplifying. But yeah. in this rubric, the Marvel heroes are scientific heroes and the DC heroes are kind of heroes of a moral, um, you know, a moral character. Right. And it's it's uh, at least at least they pay lip service to that. Um, I, I think that if this podcast has taught me one thing, uh, it's the power of love. <laughs> All right. I think we're going to have to leave our conversation there. Thanks very much uh, for listening. Thank you very much to Rachel, to Pete, to Mark, to Ryan uh, for podcasting. I've been uh, Matt, your host, and you have been listening. And I hope you will go to uh, overthinkingit.com slash store and get a suns out, puns out t-shirt, men's and women's t-shirts or tanks in limited edition colors for uh, 2017, available only for a limited time. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.